Well, why don't we pray before we reflect on the topic of identity? Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd speak to us through the pages of Scripture, speak into our hearts, help us to have an understanding, uh, trust and help us to respond rightly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read the following story a number of years back and while I can't remember the precise details, it went along the following lines. A woman was walking by herself somewhere when she was attacked by her man, a man who wanted to steal her bag. Uh, in sheer terror, the woman apparently blurted out, don't hurt me, I'm a writer. Now, uh, I don't know what happened after that, but the woman's comment is quite illuminating. Because think about it, uh, when under pressure, when under stress, when she had no time to prepare or plan what she might have wanted to have said, when her well-being, perhaps even her life was at risk, what is it that came into her mind and came out of her mouth? Don't hurt me, I'm a writer. Now, the questions of who are we and why are we here are important questions. They're questions that go to our identity. And I think if this woman had been asked, who are you? She would have said, well, I'm a writer. If she'd been asked, why, am I, why are you here? I think she would have said, well, you know, to, to write. I, I wonder how you would answer those two questions. Now, they're questions which adults tend not to ask themselves very often unless they're prompted but younger people often do so uh, perhaps when I was a teenager perhaps if you're a teenager maybe you're trying to carve out your identity perhaps separately to your parents and you're thinking well who am I you know why am I here uh, when you finish high school goodness when I finished high school I saw that my you know eternity stretching out in front of me what was I going to do with my life questions of you know who am I why am I here I think would have occurred to me but when adults, uh, we often get a bit more settled and it usually takes some sort of major change to make us ask those questions. So perhaps someone perceives themselves as a family man. I'm a family man and, and their identity is caught up with that. But then what happens when that person's family perhaps breaks down? He, he separates from his wife, the family disintegrates a bit. Suddenly you can appreciate that he might be asking, well, who am I and why am I here? Or perhaps a woman uh, devotes her life to some career and she achieves great success and then she gets to the age of 65 or 67 and a half and she retires, she's no longer doing it. Well, who is she and what's her purpose now? Uh, often a, a major change can make us ask those questions, but hopefully um, tonight we're not going to require a major change to ask those questions because I'm going to ask those questions of you tonight. Who are you and why are you here? Now, how should we think of ourselves? How should we define ourselves? Should we define it by our family, by our work, by our interests, by our sexuality, by our nationality, by, by something else? How should we do it? Is identity something which is given to us or is identity something that we sort of make up for ourselves? And these are not simply philosophical questions which we are best left to academics in ivory towers. They're actually questions which affect how we live and what we do. Uh, how we, the course we set for the rest of our lives from now on is very much impacted by who we see ourselves as being and, and what we're here to do. Um, when you encounter difficulties, perhaps something goes wrong in your life, who am I and why am I here are often the questions uh, we may want to reflect on. And these are important questions for when we meet God himself in the future, as we all will at some point in the, uh, to come. 
Now, today, as you would have heard, we're starting our Term 3 series, which we've entitled Roles and Relationships, and tonight we're looking at the very foundational topic of identity. I'm going to be drawing on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, Psalm 8, and a few other areas as well. Now, I hope many of you have been able to pick up um, a copy of the outline uh, when you came in, and you'll see from that, firstly, I'm going to look at the question of addressing the big questions. Then I'm going to uh, spend some time reflecting on who are we, and then briefly, we're going to reflect on why are we here. So why do we think about how to go about addressing the big questions of life? I mean, when addressing any question, whether it's big or not, we really have two options before us. We can look to God to see what He might have to say on the topic, or at least what He might say which is relevant to the topic, or we can look somewhere else. We might look to our family, we might look to our friends, we might look to some philosopher, we might look to uh, the media, in a word, we might look to society. So, how might Western society, because that's where we're part of, where we're part of Western society, how might Western society speak to us about the topic of identity? Now, I mentioned, I think, in the service here a month or two back, uh, that I listened to the views of one social commentator who suggested that society in the West today is dominated by two words, autonomy and authenticity. Autonomy is do what you want to do, authenticity is be who you want to be put them together and you get a phrase which was very famous a few decades ago, do what you want to do, be who you want to be. Now, that shortens quite nicely to a contemporary version of it, which is in effect saying the same thing, which is the phrase, you do you. So, if you've heard that before, it's the same sort of idea. And in a you do you world, uh, the following ideas are particularly prominent. Ideas of individualism, uh, the importance of feelings, the importance of expressing ourselves are paramount. Now, for those of you who would like me to give you some intellectual backup for these views, and they aren't just things that fell into my head during the week, um, I'm going to give you a few quotes from people. So, there's a famous American sociologist called Philip Reef, who has spoken what he describes to as the dominance of the psychological man. Now, if I'd said it, I would have said the psychological person, because that's really what he means. But this is a person who is on an inward quest for the pursuit of psychological happiness. What are we really concerned about? Making ourselves happy. The psychological person, Philip Reith. Now, in terms of uh, the importance of expressing ourselves today, there's a Canadian philosopher who is quite well known called Charles Taylor. And he's described uh, the importance today of what is described as uh, expressive individualism. And that is that a person finds meaning uh, and significance in giving expression to their feelings and desires. I have these feelings and desires, I express them, whatever they may be, and, you know, that's what it's all about. Now, again, that's very prevalent today. Now, you might ask the question, and I ask the question, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with individualism? What's wrong with our feelings? What's wrong with expressing ourselves? And, in fact, there are many positive aspects to those things. So, individualism, I mean, God treats each of us as individuals. Each of us is unique, we have unique gifts and abilities, and God calls each of us individually to respond to Him by repentance and belief. So, individualism, you know, to that extent is really good. Feelings, I mean, feelings are good, uh, God created each of us with feelings. We're not just uh, an intellect and a body, we're, we're whole human beings, we have feelings as well, feelings are good things. 
and the idea of expressing ourselves, that's good too. As I said, God's made us each with individual you know, desires, abilities and gifts, etc. And it's good to give uh, expression to those things. So I think individualism, feelings and expressing ourselves are good if they're found within some good, larger framework or worldview. But if uh, these things are our ultimate priority number one, guide for life, they are absolutely appalling. Because this idea of you do you, in this respect, uh, it will harm ourselves, it will harm others, it will harm society and it won't give glory to God, should that be of one of our concerns. Let me try and convince you of why they make lousy primary life goals. Okay, there's an Australian theologian and writer by the name of Brian Rosner, who has just published a book, which he is entitled, How to Find Yourself why looking within is not the answer. Now, that's quite a uh, provocative title, isn't it? And in this book, he says that the you-do-you sort of philosophy uh, is associated with an increase in narcissism. What's narcissism, you ask? Well, narcissism is an unhealthy preoccupation with ourselves. We're obsessed by ourselves and we're obsessed with constantly having to have the approval of others narcissism. So he says, you do you is associated with increased narcissism, reduced resilience, increased mental health. Let me try and give you some authorities for that. There's a psychologist by the name of Ross King, who claims that studies show that those with narcissistic, you know, self-obsessed traits, has risen from 3% to 10% of the population in the last 30 years. In fact, some health professionals are speaking of an epidemic of narcissism. Secondly, uh, Rosner says that this you-do-you you idea is not good at dealing with um, the difficulties of life, it's not good for resilience, uh, because um, people today, uh, he says, and a guy called Hugh Mackay, as an Australian sociologist, terms this phrase a utopia complex, people have this utopia complex, possibly influenced by Disney movies, that's my own personal thought, um, but it says when that people uh, dream of and think they're entitled to a world where everything is positive. But the world isn't like that, is it? So if we have a utopia complex, when we encounter difficulties, we won't be as ready for it, we won't be as resilient. You do you, doesn't really help us there, I think Rosner would say. And then there's a quote here from a former head of the American Psychological Association, so presumably a pretty smart cookie, by the name of Martin Seligman. And I'm going to try and read this slightly because he's really talking about this, I think, this you do you idea, but using some other words. He says, the individual, the consuming self, isolated from larger entities, is a very poor site for a meaningful life. However, the bloated self, I think he means there the you-do-you self, is fertile soil for the growth of depression. So, there we go, you-do-you, increase in narcissism, reduction in resilience, increase in mental health concerns. So, it's not good for us. Uh, you do you is also harmful for others because you do you or me do me, I do what I want, it's very much concerned with me, myself, 
it, it feeds into selfishness and of course selfishness is rotten for relationships so it's not going to be good for those around us and if we have a whole world of you do you people with rotten relationships it's going to create a, a less <laughs> more rotten society so uh, not good for us others or society and most importantly you do you doesn't glorify God so as we're reflecting on questions of identity tonight and in fact as we reflect on all the issues we're going to be looking at this term which includes gender marriage sex sexuality singleness ministry and gender generations and parenthood we want to figure out I mean we want to be aware of what society thinks so that we know but ultimately we want to be guided by what God has to say because that is our ultimate source of authority that's the most helpful thing and as we will see tonight when it comes to identity what the Bible has to say about identity is far more encouraging than what the world will tell you and is more realistic than what the secular world may tell us so let's look at it point two who are we now Genesis chapter 1 is absolutely foundational for understanding who we are and it tells us that we are created by God in God's image. So Genesis 1.27 was read for us a few moments ago and it said as follows, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. I mean what a great truth, it tells us that we are created by God, you and I'm going to start to use the word you so you can think of yourself you are not here by chance whoever you are whatever you think of yourself whatever other people think of you you are deliberately here because God willed you to exist he wanted you to be here as the person you are he created you you are planned you are willed by God now this is quite contrary to the way a lot of people think today uh, because a lot of people think today that life is more random, more chance, more in effect pointless. So Richard Dawkins you would know is a famous English scientist who often speaks on atheism and other topics and I, I think he's even coming out to Australia sometime this year, he has said the following about existence, he says the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there was at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So, uh, for instance, the atheistic worldview says there's nothing but pitiless indifference, that's the world in which we inhabit it, habit. and that is not the truth as expressed in the Bible, uh, the Bible tells us that God willed you to exist, you were deliberately created by God, now, that's really important for identity. Secondly, our Genesis tells us that we are compared to God, now that's a strange word to use but I wanted to use a word starting with C because I'm using a lot of C's tonight, but basically I'm trying to say that we're created in the image of God. Genesis makes us clear that humanity is the high point of creation, uh, the Bible tells us that we're able to relate to God, that we are particularly valued by God above the rest of creation and that we are tasked to rule creation and to look after creation under God. Now when this teaching was given thousands of years ago it was really different to what the rest of the ancient world thought, 
So many of the uh, creation myths of the ancient world, say the Babylonian creation myth called the Numa Elish, but others were like it, saw that humanity was created to be slaves for the gods. Why are we here? We're in slavery to the gods. Why does the Bible tell us that we're here? Well, uh, the Bible tells us that we're here so that we can be not slaves, but sons and daughters to God, in relation to God. It's quite a different understanding. And also what the Bible says about us being created in God's image is very much contrary to much modern thinking as well, which merely sees us as the dominant species on the planet. And you know, perhaps if the dolphins had played their cards a bit better, maybe they'd be the dominant species on the planet. That's a reference for Generation X's. Um, now, there's a, an Israeli historian and philosopher around at the moment who's quite well known, and some of you may have heard of him, called Yuval Noah Harari. And I think he's an atheist uh, man. And he says that humans achieved dominance on the planet, not because of any idea of God-given responsibility, but a as a result of evolutionary struggle. So he says, Homo sapiens, that's us, uh, has come to dominate the planet through violence, greed and pride. That's why we're dominating things at the moment. Now, I agree that humans can be very violent, we can be very greedy, we can be full of pride, but that's not what the Bible says gets us to where we are. We were placed here by God with responsibilities, it's not just a quirk of fate which happens to see us here. Massively different worldview in terms of how we see ourselves. So, we're created by God, we're compared to God, and thirdly, the Bible tells us that we are cared for by God. And here's where the Psalm 8 reading is really helpful. Did you notice verses 3 and 4 there, which says, When I consider the heaven, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? I mean, what an extraordinary truth is expressed in those verses. I suspect all of us at some stage in our lives have been outside, perhaps in the country, away from lights, the moon isn't out, it's just this incredible expanse of stars above us. And perhaps you've looked up and contemplated the stars of millions as others of people have, and you've thought, wow, look at the size of that, look how small I am. You get a real sense of your smallness compared to the universe. But did you know here that the Scriptures basically say that God created that entire universe with His fingers? It's being metaphorical, of course, but it says, look, the heavens are the work of your fingers, which indicates that God is miles bigger than the universe. So, God is miles bigger than the universe, the universe is miles bigger than we are. I mean, how much bigger is God than us? I mean, think about it. Yet it says here that this hyper-immense God is mindful of us, like He thinks about you and He cares for you. Now, this is quite a contrast to the ancient worldview and other cultures which saw humans as being slaves for the gods. And it's also contrary to a lot of modern thinking, like for instance Dawkins, who I referred to earlier, who saw us as living in a world of pitiless indifference. No, the Bible teaches that God cares for us. It's, it's, it's a far different sort of teaching. Now, the idea, the extent to which God cares for us is further highlighted when we get to the New Testament, when we read about what Jesus has done for us. So, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that God demonstrates His love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So God cares for us and we see the extent of it when we see that His Son, Jesus, is prepared to die in the cross of our place. How should we view ourselves? God created us, Jesus died for us, God cares for us, God values us, we can relate to God. This is is what the Bible has to say about us uh, and our identity. Uh, it's, It's incredible and it's far better than all the other alternatives uh, out there, besides the fact that this is true. Now, this view of humanity has really shaped Western culture. Uh, And so, in, in our Western culture today, people like to think that everyone matters, and that all people are equal, and that human rights exist, and that people, including the weaker in society, should be shown compassion not just some, but everyone. Now, that was not the view of the ancient world before Christianity came along. Let's go back to a great part in the ancient world, about ancient Greece. Who's one of the eight great ancient Greek philosophers? What about Plato? Plato didn't believe in equality, he believed in inequality. So, Plato once said, Nature itself intimates that it's just, by which he means right and proper, for the better to have more than the worse, Uh, that the more powerful than the weaker. And he said, justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior, (laughs) right? So, Plato said a lot of good stuff, but that wasn't one of the good things he said. Uh, Inequality, Now, we like compassion today, but the ancient world was not anything like what we approve of today in terms of compassion, particularly towards children. Now, parents and kids, listen to what Plato says to parents about children. Plato apparently felt that if children did not prove themselves worthy, parents would properly dispose of them in secret so that no one will know what's become of them. He's talking about infanticide you know, killing kids. So, kids, if you don't measure up, Plato reckons your parents should do away with you. Parents, there we go, there's Plato's advice. You know, um, that was the view of many in the ancient world. I'm reading a book by an English-based writer at the moment called Glenn Scrivener, and he says of how we think now in relation to the ancient world. He says, um, uh, as we, us today, hear of rape and violence, inequality and brutality, slavery and death by torture, our modern sensibilities kick in. But a Roman took all of this in their stride. They were used to it, they expected it, that's what life was like. Why do we think differently today? Well, it's because of the incredible impact that the Christian worldview, the importance of humanity and identity uh, has had on us. You see, uh, the fact that many people think this today, uh, many have convincingly argued, I think, comes as a result of Jesus' teaching and the teaching of Scripture and the Bible. So, for example, in the early centuries, Christians boycotted blood sports and this saw gladiatorial games, you know, when men and women used to kill each other, uh, eventually banned. It was Christians who took up collections for the poor, who uh, were very instrumental in setting up hospitals and were instrumental in setting up orphanages. In the fourth century, there was a nun by the name of Macrina, and she'd go around scouring rubbish dumps to rescue children who'd been disposed of on rubbish dumps. Like in the ancient world, if you didn't want your kid, you might just go and take them to the dump and leave them there. 
this nun went around rescuing many of these kids. This is the Christian worldview in action. And we see these ideas of the importance of each individual, the importance of humanity, uh, human rights, etc. We take it, for, uh, we assume it today, it's because I believe the influence of, that, that Jesus is teaching in Christianity has had on our world. Now you might sort of think, hold on, but isn't the world today starting to move away uh, from uh, Christian teaching? Uh, and so, yes, and I actually think that we are starting to see a return to a few of those values from the ancient world. Let me give one or two examples. Uh, last year, there was a guy called Lord Sumption. He was a former judge on the UK Supreme Court. So, an important person in law over in the UK. And he said, I don't accept that all lives are equal. Interesting. Judge. Now, this caused an outroar in the UK. Now, the guy's not an idiot. I mean, he did say it for a reason. So, it was in the context of the COVID pandemic. And I think he was trying to say that he felt that his life was less important than the lives of his kids and grandkids. Which, in one respect, is quite a noble attitude. But that's it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to say that all lives aren't equal. And this caused an outrage in the UK. A lot of people were extremely concerned. Interesting. I mean, ancient Athens would have had no problem with that statement. Uh, Harari, that uh, Israeli historian and philosopher I referred to earlier, said, most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. Okay? But what are human rights, he says? Human rights, like God and heaven, are just a story that we've invented. So here's an atheist, the atheist worldview, you know, there's no God, there's no heaven, and really, at the end of the day, there's no such thing as human rights. I mean, where the heck do they come from? So uh, there's no objective reality, uh, he would say. So I wonder whether things like this are the thin end of the wedge, whether human rights, human equality, uh, compassion towards humans, etc., are going to reduce the further we move away from the Bible's teaching of the importance of humanity and human identity. Anyway, the Scriptures say that we are created by God, compared to God, cared for by God, and now very briefly, just a few brief thoughts on why we are here, and that is we are commissioned, here's my next C, commissioned, we are commissioned by God. Now, we're commissioned by God to do a few things, firstly, to love God and to love others, and so you would know that Jesus famously summarised the teaching of the Old Testament and the Scriptures, you know, we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. And a lot of the teaching of Scripture talks us about how we should love others in ways appropriate to our context. So, we, you know, we love people differently. Um, you know, when my parents were alive, I loved them in a certain way. Uh, I love my wife a certain way. I love my kids a certain way. I love my friends a certain way. There's lots of things in common, but obviously love is different in different situations. And so we're going to be thinking about what love looks like this term as we go for our roles and relationship series and we're going to be seeing what the Scriptures might say in particular contexts there. So we're here to love God and love others but also God commissions us to rule over and be stewards of the creation in which He's put us in. And so Genesis 1.28 talks about ruling over creation, Genesis 2.15 talks us about looking after creation. So not only are we as Christians supposed to enjoy God's creation, we're supposed to develop God's creation, to look after God's creation, to create culture in God's creation, all in accordance with the teaching of Scripture. Now, this is contrary to much modern teaching, uh, as well as ancient teaching. So, today, some people will say that humanity has no authority over creation, we are simply part of it. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that we're merely part of it, 
Bible teaches we have responsibility for creation. Others will say, well, we have no responsibility to look after creation, you know, it's simply you do you, we can do what we like with the world, once again, that's different to what the Bible would teach as well. Now, here's an important point as I near the end, uh, to fully understand and live out who we are and why we are here, uh, to live out our identity, we need to be in Christ, we need to be followers of Jesus, we need to have at some point in our life, have asked God to forgive us and said that we want to follow Him, because when we do that, um, we enter into a relationship with Christ, which enables us to better understand God's Word, gives us a desire to want to live in accordance with God's revealed Word and we are given the strength and assistance to actually do that. So, that's absolutely crucial, our identity is ultimately in Christ. Now, when people aren't in Christ, they often say things like they feel a sense of lack or as if something is missing in their life. And there was a famous Christian of about one and a half thousand years ago called Augustine and uh, he became a Christian, I think in his 20s or probably in his 30s, I think it was, and he famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So, it's not until we're in Christ that we, I guess, our identity and, and really happens. So, who are we? Why are we here? Uh, why do we matter? Why are we important? Okay, let me tell you a few. It's not because you might be smart, it's not because you might be good-looking, it's not because you might be fit, it's not because you come from a good family, it's not because you might happen to have a good job or go well in your studies, it's not because you're a certain nationality, it's not because you're a certain sexuality, it's not because of all those sorts of things, ultimately. We are ultimately important and matter because God created us, because God cares for us, uh, because Jesus died for us. Our ultimate identity is in Christ. If we're Christians, that never changes. The world around us can fluctuate and go up and down, uh, but if we're in Christ, um, we, need, we can be secure in that. So, let me conclude. Who are we and why are we here are really important questions. And so, for the sake of God's glory, uh, for the sake of God's creation, for the sake of society, for the sake of everyone you know and for the sake of you yourself, we need to find our identity in Christ. We look to God for our identity. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we pause to reflect tonight on some, big, on some big questions, which we often may not really stop to reflect on, Lord, we do pray that you would convince each of us that we need to look to you uh, for our identity and that we would find our identity in Christ, uh, not in anywhere else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.